Our scripture passage this morning is from Ezra chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, and then we're going to skip to verse 24. When you read Ezra on your own, it can be a bit confusing because when you get to verse 6, they jump ahead in history. And Ezra takes you through decades and decades of history, and then in verse 24 gets back to what they were going through in the present day. So we're in Ezra chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, and verse 24. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin, and Judah and Benjamin, of course, are the names of people, but they are also the names of the two southern tribes of Israel. So now when the enemies, the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin, heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Asarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the father's houses in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia, then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Our second reading is from John chapter 16, verse 33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. In the world, you will have trouble. In the world, you will have problems, opposition. But take heart. Be strong. Don't give up. I have overcome building together in opposition. When he was seven years old, his family lost their home. When he was nine years old, his mother died. At 22, he lost his job. He wanted to go to law school, but lacked the education. At 23, he went into debt to become a partner at a local store. At 26, his business partner died, leaving him an enormous amount of financial debt. At 28, after courting a woman for four years, he asked her to marry him, and she said, no. At 37, on his third try, he was elected to Congress. At 39, he was not reelected. At 45, he ran for Senate and lost. At 47, he failed as the vice presidential candidate. At 49, he ran for Senate and lost again. At 51, he was elected 
President of the United States of America. This man who was elected, many consider the greatest president in the history of this country. His name, Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln's life and presidency is a picture of what it means to overcome opposition. A sermon about opposition typically starts with the cold-hearted, uncomfortable truth, and so here it is. In this life, whenever you attempt to make progress, you will encounter opposition. I'd say in this life, whenever you're attempting to build something, build something for you, build something for your family, build your faith, build your ministry, build something new within the church, you will face opposition and you'll have to overcome that opposition. Just as Amazon, UPS, and FedEx will deliver at your doorstep, opposition will arrive at your doorstep. And I know you didn't order it, I know that you didn't cause it, and I know that you would not have choosed it, but it is there. And I believe that for some of us, at least for me, when I encounter opposition, it is my temptation to believe that I did something wrong that if I only said this differently or I tried it another way at another time, then I would not have encountered the opposition. I also have this thought sometimes when I face opposition in my life. Maybe you've had this thought too. If you're a spiritual person, if you're a person who was raised in the church, a person who reads your Bible, because I'm facing opposition, I must not be in God's will. I must have strayed from the path of faithfulness because if I was following God, this is how the false thinking, false conclusion goes in my head. If I was facing God, then things would be easy. You ought to all start laughing at me because as a follower of Jesus Christ, I can't look at the life of Jesus Christ and with any sort of integrity come to the conclusion that in the will of God, life is easy. In fact, the life of Christ, the life of the church, the life of the Old Testament prophet, prophets shows us that in the will of God, there is opposition. And I want to encourage some of you today who are facing a great deal of opposition. Often, the greater the opposition, the greater the impact that God is preparing for you to have. I used to think of opposition as something negative something wrong. But let me tell you this, when I read the Bible and perhaps when you read the Bible, opposition might be a sign that you're on the right track. It might be a confirmation that what you're doing is something that is for God. I, I can think of one time that, that the devil shows up in Scripture, a time that's more vivid than any other time. And if you're kind of combing through your memory and thinking about the stories that you know about the enemy, about Satan, about the adversary. There's one story that I believe is more detailed than any other story in Scripture, and that is the story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. Satan appears because Jesus is getting ready to do something awfully important in the kingdom of God. And so I want to say this this morning to our church family. 
I would be more concerned about our church if we never faced any opposition than the fact that we do face opposition. I believe that opposition is a sign, ought to be a sign to us and to you that God is on the move. We woke up the enemy because we're doing something right. We woke up the enemy because there's a threat. The kingdom of God is moving forward. Opposition is promised. Jesus said in John 16:33, in this world you will have tribulation. We read it together. In this world you will have trouble. It's a promise. In this world you will face opposition. Here's what Jesus says to his followers and to us in his first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, famously, Matthew 5:11. Blessed are you when, not if, when. Blessed are you when people insult you persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Just get the last three words on that, because of me. Because you're deepening your relationship with Jesus, because you're living out the gospel, because you're sharing his love with all, you face opposition because of your relationship and your response to Jesus Christ. So I'm, I'm not letting you off the hook. Sometimes we face opposition and we brought it on ourselves because we're being unkind. This is not an excuse to be inconsiderate of others. Oh, they, they stand against me because of Jesus. No, you have a bad attitude and you're being mean. That's why they stand against you. Because of Jesus, because of your relationship with Christ. So point number one this morning, in this life, expect opposition. Whenever you do the will of God, you'll face opposition and the greater the impact, the greater the opposition. I know, I just gave you four points on point number one. That's how the rest of this sermon's gonna go. In chapter three of Ezra, the Israelites had returned to build God's temple. This is big time kingdom of God work. They are charged with building a dwelling place for the living God on the earth. This is a monumental, God-given, holy, sacred assignment creating, building a place for God to dwell on the earth. I don't know that there's a greater honor. So they're building for the glory of God. And in Ezra chapter three, the, the chapter ends with the people of God gathered together with praise and thanksgiving as they sang to the Lord. They sang the scriptures, they sang the word of God, and they were singing a Psalm of thanks written by King David. And this is what they sang. He is good. His love to Israel endures forever. He is good. His love to Israel endures forever. This is going to sound odd to you, but I, I want you to stick with me because this is what came to mind for me during my preparation as I prepared this sermon. I was thinking about the church service that they had where they were all gathered together, the Israelites, and singing together, gathering together. He is good. His love to Israel endures forever. And I didn't think about one of our church services. Actually, what came to mind was my first visit to Happy Valley. Yeah, I got a few Penn Staters here. Wow, you all are happy. They call it Happy Valley. And I grew up going to Jets and Giants games. And what happens in Jets and Giants games is nothing considered to what happens in Happy Valley. When we walked down into the stadium surrounded by thousands of people in their Nittany Lions gear, 
This is how the fans started the game. On one side of the stadium, thousands of people yelled to the other side, we are. And then on the other side, they responded, Penn State. And I'm sorry if you have loyalty to other Big Ten teams. This is going to relate to the Word of God. Don't worry. They were going back and forth. We are Penn State. We are Penn State. Well, when, when the people of God gathered to, after they laid the foundation to sing the praises of God, it was 50,000 people gathered together. So think about a crowd at a football game. And what the commentary said happened was there were thousands of priests and the thousands of priests would yell, he is good. And the people of God would yell back to the, to the priest, his love to Israel endures forever. He is good. His love to Israel endures forever. And they were having this great big celebration. The people of God were filled with joy and inspiration and strength and power. And chapter 3 ends. And it tells us that the peoples around them heard the shouts of praise. They're celebrating God, and they woke up the opposition. And what's interesting about the Scripture is Judah, and when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin arrive, they don't arrive as opposition. They arrive as friends. They say to, to God's people, let us help you build. We have wood, let us help you. We have carpenters, let us help you. We have supplies, let us help you. We have supply chain managers, let us help you. The opposition arrives not with their fists up, but with their hands out, ready to make a pact, ready to establish a partnership. I think that sometimes our greatest opposition is that which appears in our life as if it's not opposition. And I think that the temptation is to befriend the opposition rather than to forsake the opposition, right? We can see the potential benefits of a partnership between the Israelites and the people who came before him, their opposition, right? Immediately there's benefits. We need labor, we have labor. We need supplies, we have supplies. We need financial resources, we have financial resources. And so there's an initial benefit, but there's going to be a long-term consequence. And as people, we often see what's right in front of us, and we miss what's down the road if we go down the wrong road. And here's the reason why this was such a deadly trap, right? They appeared as friends. Many in the group probably thought it was going to be a benefit to partner with them, but it is a deadly trap. And I'm not just being an overdramatic preacher in this moment. This is not hyperbole. This is a dangerous moment in the history of Israel. Let me tell you why. The people who extended the hand of partnership and friendship were the Samaritans. And I know that if you read the, the New Testament, we all know that there are good Samaritans, right? You know the story of the good Samaritan. These were not the good Samaritans. These were the sneaky, dangerous, hostile Samaritans. The Samaritans come to them and they twist the truth. You want to be able to identify who the opposition is? Who's lying to you? Who's twisting the truth? Right? That's a good sign. They twist the truth. This is what they say to them. We've been worshiping your God. 
which is true. They have been worshiping the God of the Bible, the Yahweh, the God of Israel. However, in addition to worshiping the God of the Bible, they are also worshiping every other God in the land. Further, they say, we've been sacrificing to your God since the days of King Esarhaddon, king of Assyria. That's true, they have been sacrificing to the God of the Israelites, our God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. However, they had been also sacrificing to all the other gods in the land. Do you know what that means? They were in violation of the first two commandments. The first two commandments are, you shall have no other gods before me and do not create false idols, carven images. Don't bow before them, don't serve them. The Samaritans were doing both of those things in violation of the first two commandments. And you might just say, hey, live and let live, that's fine, that's for them to do. The Israelites, if you read the, the Old Testament, and it's, it's thick, you read the Old Testament, it's not easy to get through. I would tell you, you could probably open up to any page and you can read about the sin that plagued the Israelites through their inception as a people of God. They worshiped other gods and they worshiped false idols. The reason that they were in captivity and exile in the first place is because they had fallen short of the glory of God in violation of the first two commandments. They worshiped false gods and they worshiped false idols. This is their weakness. This is their point of vulnerability. It's their greatest point of vulnerability. And when we talk about spiritual opposition, the enemy knows where our weakness and our vulnerabilities are, and the enemy will not change his strategy until we overcome that area of weakness and vulnerability. The enemy will continue to use the same scheme and method until we're victorious in that area of our lives, right? Just one more bite. Just one more drink from the bar, just one more lust look, just one more date, just one more sinful relationship, just one more. They are so weak and vulnerable in this area. And while other people may have been able to tolerate and deal with a building project partnership with the Samaritans, the Israelites cannot handle it. What some people can handle in terms of temptation, you can't handle it. There are areas in your life where you are weak and vulnerable and the enemy has attacked you year after year, decade after decade in that very same area. And what I want to tell you this morning is in that particular area, and it's different for all of us, don't give in. Don't partner with the opposition. Don't give in again. Don't cooperate, don't compromise. There's a time to compromise and there's a time to cooperate. Always cooperate and compromise when it comes to your wife. Amen? You can put that in your notebook. She's taking notes. Hold me to it. It's mind boggling to me how I, how you, how we, we keep playing with fire even after we've been burned, right? How we keep going back to that well and convincing ourselves that, no, that water's pure, knowing through the history of our lives that if we drink from that same well again, that that water is poison. Here's a challenge for you this week, and, and I don't know what the area is for you, where the opposition is in your life, 
where the sinful opposition is, where the spiritual opposition is, where the external worldly opposition is for you, and I don't have to know. But this week, don't compromise. Don't give in and don't cooperate, forsake it. So, so identify that which plagues you, that which poisons you, that which hurts you, the ways in which you're under attack. And I don't believe that, that Christianity ought to be something that we do as individuals. So if you have a trusted friend, a, a trusted family member who's a Christian, that you can identify that area in your life and you could bring it to them and you can say, this is my commitment. I'm not compromising, I'm not cooperating this week, this is what I'm gonna do. And also ask that person to pray for you. As your pastor, this is one way that I can be praying for you in, in confidence, you can reach out to me. But I wanna be, I wanna encourage us to be like Zerubbabel. Encourage us to be like Jeshua, the heads of the families, to not cooperate and to say, you know what? We're gonna go after the Lord alone. We're gonna build this thing alone. We, we can't mingle with the opposition right now we need to seek God together. So I think that's point number two. And I'm going to make point number three. And I don't know how quick it is. Yeah, let me give you a few tools here before we wrap up our word this morning. Let me give you a few tools. I just want you to know this before I give you a few ways to overcome opposition. The construction on the temple stopped for 16 years. They gave up their purpose and they gave up their calling for 16 years, and we'll, we'll get to that next week. The opposition discouraged them and put fear in their hearts. So I just want you to note this. The opposition did not have the power to stop them. The opposition only had the power to discourage and scare them. They had the anointing of God upon their lives to do what God had called them to do, to build together. They had the power of God on their side, and they had the power of King Cyrus who was the king of Persia, the world's superpower. Here's, here's just what I want you to take away from that. The opposition can't stop you. If God has called you to do something, the opposition can't stop you. Only you can stop you. So they stop because they're discouraged. They give up because they're discouraged. They gave up on God's dream because they were discouraged. Discouragement kept them from trying. Discouragement kept them from taking a risk. Discouragement kept them from believing, hoping, and continuing in God's will. And if we're not careful, discouragement has the power to do the same to us. So they give up. When were the people of God most powerful in Ezra chapter 3? What were they doing when they were inspired and motivated and strong? How were they living? What was happening? Do I need to take you back to the football game again? They were worshiping God in God's word. He is good. His love to Israel endures forever. That was when they were motivated and powerful and strong. Their mind was fixed on God, not on the opposition. When the opposition comes, what am I going to tell you to do? Ignore them. Who cares? You're serving God. You're going after the Lord. Ignore them. If you ignore them, they have no power over you. Number two, fix your focus and fix your mind on the Word of God and the promises of God. Because when you're saturated, when your mind's saturated with the Word of God, there's no space for the negativity. There's no room in your mind and your heart to be brought low because you're seeking after the Lord. You're with the one who's greater than your opposition. You're holding on to His promises. 
You're being filled by, the, by His presence. So this week, you identify the opposition. Bring it before someone else and make a commitment not to compromise, not to cooperate. And then be filled with the words and the promises of God. Let Him strengthen you through His Word as God calls us together to this holy and sacred calling of building His kingdom, our lives, in His will together. Thanks be to God. Amen.